My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, I'm Rokas Pichelaitis, founder of Contrarian Ventures, and I'm excited to host this series on the journey to net zero. Let's hear from my guest today. Hi, Katie. Welcome to Calvin Fellows Podcast. It's really great to have you today. And thanks really for taking the time to share your journey uh, with the community. So nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. So let's get onto it. You know, you have a very, very impressive background and you've done so many things uh, through your career. Uh, I would like to start and maybe you could walk through your background and how you got to where you are now, founding the engine. I'd love to. Uh, so First of all, my background is certainly not straightforward. I'm not what you would consider a careerist. I didn't <laughs> at 21 years old say I'm going to be a venture capitalist someday. You know, I've done a bunch of different things. In fact, early in my life, I thought I'd be a doctor and really, you know, it's undergrad biology major, but I also did environmental studies. And yep. so lots of interest really in helping people thinking about what are the big problems. And so that orientation has always been there for me. I think of myself as very human-oriented, very mission-oriented. And so really what happened is, you know, after undergrad, I worked with homeless families okay. trying to figure out, you know, how to get them health care, how to get their kids educated, how to get stable homes. And that was a way toward medical school for me because I thought I wanted to do maternal child health, really. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a mission-based way to get there. I learned really quickly that I didn't want to be a doctor, which was probably the greatest thing that happened, right? Yeah. A, a no answer is better than anything else. And that really led me toward how do you build strong communities, strong businesses, which is the base of a lot of communities. And that led me to business school where the internet hit me and entrepreneurship, <laughs> venture capital, really good timing. And uh, so I learned, I started actually coming up to MIT with a, a startup and entered the 100K, which at that point was the 50K. Yeah. And uh, that's where I learned what an angel investor was, what a venture capitalist was. And then after business school, went out to the Valley, which I thought was an incredible place to go learn quickly, be with high growth startups and, and think about things like that. And that's where I literally stumbled upon uh, Zip2, which was Elon Musk's first startup. So that yeah, a great you know, probably, story. <laughs> it was it was it was a great startup, an incredible group of people, many yeah. of which have gone on to do, you know, probably hundreds of startups at this point or become venture capitalists. And I think I learned the first lesson that it's all about the people, right? And so yep. this was a highly motivated group of people. 
From there, I did a couple of other kind of startup, you know, general manager jobs, and then landed, I mean, I'm massively fast forwarding here, but landed working uh, for Ray Ozzy at Microsoft Mm -hmm. right after he'd taken over for Bill Gates and doing- And you worked in product, right? It worked in product and worked in multi-products. And we were basically a startup inside of Microsoft. So we were developing new products that could be started from the ground up. And it was there that I actually met Brad Feld, who's nice. been a very strong mentor of mine mm. really since then. He probably didn't know it for the first three or four years, but uh, certainly knows it now. And, uh, and so, that's where your sort of journey started with uh, MIT, right? That's where my journey started with MIT, but mainly with investing. Mm-hmm. And he really encouraged me to angel invest. He encouraged me to look at venture capital. And so when I left Microsoft, I started angel investing. You had a great role model. I had a great role model, but I also had a role model of just do it. What's the mm. big deal? And uh, I called him after I left Microsoft. And he said, you know, well, you should go talk to the Techstars people. We're just really opening in Boston. And that led to me being the managing director of Boston and Amazing. then helping think think about scaling Techstars globally. And uh, that was an incredible time. I got to work, look at, you know, one of the first things every venture capitalist told me is, hey, you know, until you've looked at a thousand deals, it won't, you know, you, you can't have any pattern recognition. And, you know, running Techstars, you look at a thousand deals in two months, right? And uh, that doesn't mean it gives you deep pattern recognition, but I certainly started to develop some very, very quickly and got to work with incredible early stage entrepreneurs and learned how to raise my first fund, which was a very small fund. These city funds at the time were two to $3 million, but it's the same process. You need a bunch of LPs, they need to write you a check. Um, They need to believe that you'll pick well. And so that that was Project 11, right? Well, that was Techstars Boston. Okay, that was Techstars. Mm -hmm. And then then I went and and, uh, started my own firm called Project 11 with Reed Sturdivant, who had been, I'd worked with Reed at that point about eight or nine years. And I've worked with him now almost 17 years. So uh, we decided to, you know, really with Techstars, they were an LP P of ours, to go off and uh, really start our own early stage fund in, you know, certainly not, we we looked at all the Techstars companies, still part, very much part of that network, but raised my first independent fund there. Mm-hmm. And that was a ton of fun. You know, it's all the same, whether it's Techstars Project 11 or the engine, it's all the same journey of working with entrepreneurs to support and amplify their dreams, right? And yeah. help direct, help, but also mainly to support. Uh, and then you're a base of knowledge for them. And so, Project 11, uh, yeah. so was that your first inners or, or even agile investing as you mentioned, was, was that specific sector focus? Was there a thesis or it was just sort of generalist? It was generalist, early stage, um, more software oriented, but not exclusively at all. It was uh, 
pre-seed and seed stage checks. So Hmm. first check in, roll up your sleeves and really work with the entrepreneurs. We actually had space where many of our entrepreneurs worked out of. And uh, so very, very hands-on. And we did that with a third partner, Bob Mason. And all three of us had been operators. All three of us could work with the companies and really help them in those early days of sorting what should their strategy be? How do they get to market? How do they think about scaling? Uh, how do they hire and fire? And how do they make their first deals? Those are all things that I've done at Techstars, but also at Project 11. So that was the thesis is that we could make the journey faster and easier for the entrepreneurs. Amazing. In 2017, um, yeah. <laughs> you started you started Engine. And, and again, 2010 MIT, you've been there in MIT Media Lab. So definitely had already I've seen uh, some of the kitchen there. And, and what so could you could you start with how the engine idea was born and, you know, how, how it went to form this really unique and necessary and a role model partnership in, in probably in the whole world. Yeah. It's so, you know, these things are never straightforward, right? (laughs) That's the beauty, I guess, about life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. I think it is. So I was going out to raise fund two for project 11 and called one of my dear friends, David Fialco, who's, you know, managing general partner at at, uh, General Catalyst because he's an excellent fundraiser. And Mm. I said, I want to get better at fundraising. And he said, you're, you're, nope, there's this, there's this unbelievable once in a lifetime opportunity. And MIT is thinking about starting this fund very early stage, very focused on translating ideas out of labs. You would be an unbelievable person to lead this. Come and meet the folks at MIT. And I said, you're crazy, David. I've worked so hard. I have like crawled along the bottom of the earth to do my own fund. There's no way I would ever do this. And he said, just listen, like see what happens. And so I went and met uh, the person who had become chair of the board, Israel Ruiz, and then President Rafael Reif. And what they were proposing was so different, so unique, and so aligned to my values Mm. that and such a what what my now partner Ann DeWitt would say, such a worthy experiment. Yeah. So essentially the idea was, listen, what what is MIT's mission? Their mission is actually impact. Serious, period. End of story, impact. And when they looked at what was happening, what kinds of ideas were translating out of labs, what were the world's biggest problems, what they were seeing over and over again is that some of the most important translations, the things that could have the biggest impact in the world, were not actually getting to market because there were barriers between the lab to commercialization. And the question was, with the partnership with MIT, could that journey, one, be possible, faster, and venture-backable, right? Because we know if things are venture-backable, they, they, money flows toward them, they get into higher growth, they get into higher impact around the world. And so that was the experiment we ran, which is, could you take the resources of an MIT paired with a venture capital fund and really go after what we now call tough tech ideas? 
So oh I want to stop here yeah. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and kind of pick on a few words that you said. So when you say resources, and I think that's really the uniqueness of your platform that you're building now, and that has now multiple dimensions, not just uh, funding. Uh, obviously, it's pretty certain that university biggest resource is talent pool. And obviously, there's probably one could argue what MIT is the prime number one in, in that respect in science. You also have infrastructure. Uh, labs and, and other infrastructure that companies lack at the early stages. Is there anything I'm missing here? And could you elaborate a bit more on how you define resources within the engine? Yeah. So if you think about what are the very, very unique things that MIT brings to the table, unbelievable network. And that means not just, I mean, their alumni network, spectacular but also relationships across government, relationships across industry, relationship across um, even local region, right? Like all of the people who uh, really make the Boston region what it is, and then many other regions around the world, right? So this is the density, depth, and quality of the network, I think is Certainly, there are only a handful of institutions in the world that have that, especially in areas of technology. Then, then we also have infrastructure and mm -hmm. equipment. So if you think about if you could make available to startups the equipment and types of spaces that only an MIT has, we call that the engine room, but also the ability to build space. So right now we're in the middle of a large project to build out you know, almost 200,000 square feet of space for tough tech companies. I've seen that. I read the report that yeah. you guys published. Yeah. This is super exciting. Something yeah. that has never been done and on that scale, I think even. Yeah. So, and then, you know, beyond that, you have a venture capital fund, right? And that, that invests into companies in tough tech coming out of MIT, but also other universities. And I think that makes us quite different as well, is that it is not just captive to MIT. It's meant to be regional. If you look at the Boston region and the number of incredible labs here working on very, very important problems for the world and therefore opportunities, there's no other place with the density and quality of the labs as, as the Boston region. Yeah. I think I always, when I have discussions, whether that's a government or, or someone from the public sector, I always refer, if you want to find a model that works, look at the engine. And I think what you have, and, and you have it embedded in your thesis, and something that I want to touch a bit briefly is this end-to-end spin-off funding process. And that is very unique. And I think a lot of people try to replicate Valley and this, and, and it's location replication. But the model that you created for funding these startups in the early days is something really unique with the, you know, all the portfolio companies in the engine are super successful companies target, targeting really one of the most complex problems existing out there. Could you elaborate a bit more about this and, and maybe some unique points that listeners would not know about this? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, if you're going to do technological translation into companies, right? So true translation yeah. into scaled startups, you've got to think very deeply and clearly about what hits that criteria. 
you know, we're not just, we, we do do climate change companies. We do healthcare companies and ag tech companies and advanced systems companies. But across all of them is this kind of unifying concept of what could have global impact. And that's not a simple measurement. I wish it was like mm-hmm. my friend Carmichael Roberts, you know, you know, has a gigaton measure and that's what they measure every portfolio by. Because we're working across tough tech, we've got to say, will this company have a positive global impact that will enable the world, change some problem in the world, but that if it's scaled, it would undeniably have been a massive positive impact. So already you start by thinking about, you know, a scaled company, no, no question. And that's why it matches to venture. But I think for us, that means we go all the way back into the labs. We start working with PhD students very, very early in their process of, of, of their doctorate. We work with principal investigators, not just on what they have already invented, but what they might possibly invent and the areas that they are interested in inventing in. It also means that we are betting on people with deep technical knowledge that will become company leaders. I don't believe if you're going to innovate in tough tech that you can just you know, put somebody with business experience next to the technical person. It means the technical team must have the capability to lead. So that leads to a number of beliefs that we have, right? That the technical founders must become scaled leaders. That doesn't mean they have to be CEOs forever, but I think that orientation is very important to what we do because I think often the kinds of technologies that we're bringing to market that can have these big global impacts will mean that you have to understand the technology well enough to understand how you actually get it to market and that the business model is uniquely tied to that technological innovation. So I'll just throw out a for instance, and then you could stop me and redirect me wherever you want. If you're going to run the first scaled fusion power company in the world, that person better understand fusion, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because you're going to make a whole bunch of choices, technical and business choices about how to get to market. So you better believe that that human being can understand both have the trade-offs of both in order to really have a scaled company. So that is, I think, very much our orientation. There are others in the world with that orientation, but I think the bigness combined with the patience. So our fund also has up to an 18-year life, which is, you know, many years longer than most. Something that is very unique and really gives an edge for you and the founders as well. That's right, because it means we can go after these huge opportunities that might take longer to get to market. Uh, And let me just throw out one other, you know, really important thing is that it's not that we want them to take longer. We, we're thrilled if they take less time, but we want to be able to bet on those things that might take more time. And biotech has cracked this code, right? They can get to market with an idea 
and a company that is not in revenue for many years. So there may be a time when we don't need a fund of 18 years, but currently in tough tech, you do. Um, right now with the whole SPAC market, it might be that these things can get to market much faster, but that's, we can't rely on that right now. We have to rely on that these could become 500 billion or trillion dollar companies when, when they are scaled. Absolutely. And I think that touches, that definitely touches one part of it, I think, which is them to be able to have the available resources, mostly financial and obviously talent, another important one. But then obviously, again, it takes way longer to make that actual impact, right? And get these uh, technologies to be economically feasible. I want to touch briefly, just out of curiosity, personally, to be honest, I attribute tough tech to your name <laughs> that as a, as a, as a, as you know, a current term and, and it's something that is so well crafted. I think you can use hardware, people use different sort of things, but tough tech is just so well defined in the problem that you are trying to solve backing these entrepreneurs. And then that these founders need to be also tough in their mindset and, you know, how persevere and to build these ideas for so long and take them from, you know, lab to, a full commercial application. So my question really is, 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 you know, how you come up with this name and, and, you know, what it stands for you personally. Well, I will say that I'm not the first one to use it. So uh, President Reif, MIT's president, actually was the first one I know to use it. Mm. But I thought it was so apt. And I, I think it's, what it means to me is, Yes, you're going after a tough problem, something of major importance, right? It, the technology has barriers, like it's real technology. This is like a true breakthrough advance. And then you've got to be, you've got to persevere. So you've got to be tough. So all of those things have to be there in order to make one of these companies real. So that's why we started using it because just hardware or just deep tech weren't enough for us because it had to be connected to something where we could go back and say, because that company exists, so many other positive things happened around a global problem, right? And so that's that's how we think of it. A good example is COVID, right? I mean, um I think we obviously, I think there's quite a few companies in your portfolio that are solving health crisis, which I think we have at the moment and we'll probably have for some time. But those problems, they're not just problems, you know, it's not just a, an optimization problem. It's really problems that define our existence. And uh, I want to lean a bit into uh, the climate problem. You know, you have it pretty much embedded into your thesis, given that it's one of the biggest problems, in my personal opinion, probably by far the biggest one. And, and, and you have some really, really great and transformational uh, com portfolio companies like Forum Energy and others. Uh, you know, uh, how, what is climate tech is, is within your thesis, obviously within the tough tech. Uh, is it a big part? Is, is it a small part? Is it a part that you care about personally as well? Yeah, it's probably nearly half of our portfolio. Mm -hmm. And it is one near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's, I think it is emblematic of tough tech, right? You know what the problem is, yeah. you know what the impact will be, but you also know that you will need to persevere through these things because you're all often building 
a first of a kind power plant, you know, that's Form Energy, Commonwealth Fusion, or yeah. Boston Metal, if you're trying to really uh, decarbonize steel, right? You're, you were lighting a furnace on fire at very high energy. So these are things <laughs> that require, you know, true technical knowledge. You have to be careful, but there's real IP behind these things. And if you get it to market and you scale it, you could literally take out, you know, percentages of carbon emitted every year or via separations where they're doing chemical separations without distillation. I mean, these are things where you're taking big chunks of carbon out of out of the environment. I mean, those are those are companies, it's so easy to love them because you know, every day, even if they're hard, you're like, you're waking up really aligned to their mission and, and to the human beings leading them today. So that, that's, that's kind of what gives me uh, so much joy in what I do is being completely aligned to the company's mission and therefore returning capital, but also making sure that you know, form energy is all over the world or via separations is all over the world or Commonwealth fusion has 10,000 power plants (laughs) or Quaze gets, does their deep geothermal and gets down far enough that we could do deep geothermal anywhere. Like it's simple to be motivated by these companies. I love, I love the excitement. uh, And I share that with you. I think you're very vocal about, I think the government part in this, uh, climate transition, journey to net zero, net negative. What do you think is the most challenging part of, you know, world's journey to net zero or net negative at this point of time? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I'm a startup person and I think startups play a huge role in this because, you know, many of our corporations and many people have very entrenched interests in keeping things the same. Mm-hmm. or making it somebody else's problem. And that's what I think the spirit of the startup is essentially to say, no, 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 we can do this differently. The rebel. And <laughs> the rebel. And it's not that we don't need to work with everyone, right? Startups work with industry all the time. But I think the role of government is to encourage the breakthrough, encourage the startup, encourage the scaling of the startup, because that will have the greatest societal benefit. And so I think the role of government, especially in reversal of climate change, is to make sure that these ideas and companies do not die, that they actually flourish and scale, not just locally, but globally, because that has a global impact on climate change. It has a local impact on economic development. And so, the, and by that I mean U.S. or even sit down to the city or the state, state or city. But it is very important that the government is there as the buyer of the first or in financial instruments, whether it's contracts or debt or, um, or of course, all of the money that is put into uh, research, right? But we cannot stop before these companies get scaled. And so that, you know, sometimes we, certainly different presidents come in, different agendas, but I think it is crucial that the U.S. government 
state with a steady hand in encouraging us to get to net zero as fast as possible and encouraging us to work with the world toward that goal. And startups, I think, are one of our main paths to get there. Uh, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think uh, you mentioned Carmichael before and I had a chat with him and he said two, two words that really struck to me is what startups have is ability to collaborate and, and ability to be fast, meaning speed. And that's really two things that we need to, you know, really reach these ambitious goals that I think the governments are communicating all around the world or companies are trying to communicate though don't have a plan to do it. So I think collaboration and speed are not two obvious things for a corporate, actually. <laughs> These are quite the opposites, to be fair. <laughs> well, I think I think that is, it, it depends on the corporate. Absolutely. And, no, yes. no, no generalization yep. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've seen a lot of collaboration, a lot of really interesting things happening, you know, uh, whether it's on the investment side or the know-how side. So, but I do think startups get everybody they're faster. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you had, you mentioned Brad Feld and he's a good f f friend for Calvin fellows and really, um, really, really an amazing support. And, and you had amazing people shaping your career and now you're becoming one of the most influential investors in your own space in tough tech space. Uh, what do you think makes a great VC investor in your personal opinion? Well, I mean, I think I'm of the school that you really care about your entrepreneurs, right? That you're, you are, oriented towards human beings, you're oriented towards amplifying their goals, right? And that means uh, it's that it is, you are at their service, mm. right? And that means being real and direct, uh, being honest about what your opinions are, but also flexible, mm. that you're not the expert, right? And so you might have more experience and have seen this story play more times than the entrepreneur has, but that you're bringing that to bear to their benefit, but not to their, not telling them what to do. And yeah. I think, um, I think sometimes that's really confusing and sometimes we get scared because things aren't going well. But I think the best investors I know are giving, helping to provide opportunities, optionality, different ways of thinking, support, love, care, you know, all yeah. those nurturing words that I could say. Uh, that's, that's what I think makes a great investor at a company level. And then what makes a great investor from a probably an LP level is the honesty about where the companies are yeah. and therefore you're matching kind of where you're putting your dollars uh based on where you what companies are going to actually perform and that honesty about where the portfolio is is not simple but i think it's it's one that is crucial to be a great investor uh, what one advice do you have for our audience? We have, you know, VC investors and innovators and LPs. What's one thing that struck you and that's something that you want to share with everyone? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to have a friendship group and a, a set of mentors and a friendship group of other people who are doing a similar job to you. So mm. I'll give you an example. Carmichael and I 
spend a bunch of time together because he's one of the few people and he lives in Boston. I mean, we live in the same town. Yeah. <laughs> he's somebody that I could bring anything to and say, Carmichael, how, how do you think about this? How should I think about this? How have you solved that problem? But it's having those friends. And I think not just other GPs, but also LPs that you can say, and I have a, I have a bunch of those where I could go to an LP and say, I'm not sure how to deal with this. What have you mm. seen? So it's just making sure that you have true friends, people that you can relax with, that you can be real with. And the more you have that group of, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, four, five, six people. I think that makes a real difference in you know, the journey of being a venture capitalist. Yeah, I think um, I've heard he likes spin, so you're probably doing a lot of spin classes with him as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so last question, actually, from my side. So you work with tough problems, uh, with founders that are going through a tough road, solving most really challenging things in the world that exist. And, you know, how do you stay sharp? You know, what do you read? What do you, what do you write? What inspire you? Like, what what's something that, you know, Commonly, no one would know. <laughs> no, I mean, I read all the time. I, I use Audible, plus I probably have five books going at any time. And uh, I listen to tons of podcasts, you know. Um, I think you're an avid writer as well. I really I, like your pieces. <laughs> I don't think of myself that way, but, um, but I think, no, the reading is super important. Probably for my personal mental health, meditating and walking yeah. are probably the two most important things that I do to be quiet and to calm myself, right? I think that retreat or that respite from the always on life that, that I certainly live and love living, I think is truly important. Thank you, Katie. Uh, look, this has been really, really great. And uh, I think you, you, you've been, I've been following for a long time and I was urging to have this conversation. So it's been really, really pleasure to chatting with you today. So nice to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Katie. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 